Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Grounded with Pastor Matt Round. Um, this week's question comes from a listener. If God is good, then why do people go to hell? This is a question that I have heard a lot throughout my life, and you probably have as well. Um, so we're going to get an answer for that question today from Pastor Matt Round. Hello, Pastor Matt. Hey, Noah. All right. So the answer to this question is in some ways... Uh, long enough to write books about and short enough that we could probably answer it in about 30 seconds. Um, but then I'm sure there'd be a lot of follow-up questions. So we're going to land definitely somewhere in the middle of those two. Uh, and I want you to do me a favor. If you could just repeat the question exactly the way that it was asked for me, if you would, and then I want to modify it just a little bit. So how was that question asked by the listener? If God is good and I, I wrote this as they were telling it to me. Yeah. So it is accurate. If God is good, then why do people go to hell? Good. All right. So if God is good, then why do people go to hell? Uh, another way that we hear that quite often is if God is love, how can he send people to hell? Or how can a loving God send people to hell? And the reason I ask you to repeat that is because I want to first focus on when we answer that question, we have to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. Defining terms is important. When we talk about God being good, or when we talk about God being loving, are we talking about a God who does not punish what is wicked? And we would kind of instinctually say, no, that's not what we're talking about. We want evil dealt with. But we have to understand that when we're talking about a good God, and we are talking about a good God, when we're talking about a loving God, and we are talking about a loving God, we have to make sure that we're not limiting those things to not only a finite human definition, but a really narrow understanding of what we want those words to mean in the moment. Um, if God is good, then that means that there is no evil, no wickedness, no darkness in him. If God is love, then... I mean, even using the definition of love coming out of 1 Corinthians 13, that love doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. For God to be loving, for God to be good, means that he must have an averse reaction to those things that are not good, that are not loving. Uh, it's a fairly common illustration, um, but I think it fits. The idea of a, a judge who out of his love or kindness, pardoned every murderer that was brought before him. We wouldn't say that that was a good judge. We certainly wouldn't say that that was a just judge. We wouldn't say that that was a right or righteous judge. And in fact, we wouldn't even say that that was a loving judge. To, to fail to deal with sin wouldn't make God loving. It would actually make him less than loving. It wouldn't make him good. It would make him less than good. To understand who God is, we have to see him in his holiness, in the perfection of all that he is. That means when we talk about the God who is love, the God who is good, he is also the God who is just. He is also the God who is merciful. All these things that we hold to be intention or maybe even contradictions in our mind, they're not. They're all perfect in God. He is the perfection of all of these things. Um, so when we talk about a good and loving God, we are not talking about a good and loving God who then cannot do anything that is just or anything that deals rightly with injustice or sin. For God to be good, as that question frames it, actually demands that he is a God 
who exercises justice and judgment against sin. The second part of that is why do people go to hell or why does God send people to hell? And again, that, that frames the question in the sense of God against a person's will and desire, separating them from him forever toward eternal punishment. The reality is that that is not the case. That's not what's happening. Does God condemn people? Does God judge people? Does God cast people into hell? And the answer is a a biblical and a very real yes. But does God cast away those who would turn to him, those who would do what is right, those who would want to be or long to be in relationship with him? And the answer is absolutely not. And the question at the very heart of all of that is what condemns someone to hell in the first place? And if you read through particularly Romans 1, and I don't want to read huge lengthy passages, but it's important. Romans 1, starting in verse 18, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." In other words, simply by living, breathing, existing in God's creation, you know something about God. You know his eternal power and his divine nature. And this isn't new to Paul. If you look at uh, Psalm 19, David says, the heavens are telling the glory of God. The skies declare things about God. Day after day, pour forth speech. Night after night declares knowledge. Uh, There's no language. There's no words where this isn't heard. It talks about the exposure to the sun and how that screams design. It, It screams order. It cries out about the God who made it. And so the first thing that we need to understand when we're answering this question, how could a loving God, how could a kind God, how could a good God send people to hell? And then kind of the natural outflow of that is what about all those poor people who have never even heard of him, never been exposed to the reality of who God is? And biblically and in our human experience, the answer is that everyone has been exposed to who he is. That again, simply by living, you know something about the God who not only made all of this, but who made you. And Romans 1 verse 18 says that that wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the other reality. Not only that men know and understand that there is a God, but that it takes an active volition of the will to suppress that truth. Um, In the summer, you go into the pool and you bring a beach ball with you. And one of the cool things that you do uh, is you push that ball under the water and then you walk up next to someone and you let it go and it just bursts up in front of them and shocks them and soaks them. And that's a great thing to do. Uh, the, the picture here is that on our own, in our natural human will, the fallen state of who we are, our, our consistent and constant and universal human response is to take that picture of who God is, that understanding that creation itself has revealed to us, and through an act of wickedness, willful wickedness, to push that down and reject it. That's why verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The universal reality is not only that man knows about God, but that man desires to worship something. And again, through every culture and every time and every language and every place, you find men in worship to something. Because we know it's not out of ignorance that man worships. But in our refusal to worship the one who is worthy of our worship, we choose to worship things in creation. Rather than worshiping the creator, we worship the creation because we can form it. We can mold it. We can manipulate it. If I have a God that I have made in my image, well, then I have some say in what that God is like. But if the God who formed and filled the universe and made me and has called me, well, then he gets to set the standard for what my life looks like. And again, in our natural darkened state, we don't want that. We actively suppress the truth of who God is. We actively pursue our own will. The Bible repeatedly speaks to the idea that there aren't just good people ignorantly walking around hoping to stumble into the knowledge of God. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. There's none righteous. There's no, not one. We've all turned aside. We've all pursued our own lusts, our own passions, our own desires. As the Bible talks about humanity, it does not talk about us in terms of uh, generally good and trending toward godliness. It doesn't even talk about us as neutral, but hoping to find the right. As you describe the natural man, his will is bent on doing his own will. And so when you ask the question, why does a good God send, allow, however you want to phrase it, people to go to hell. You are fundamentally misunderstanding the idea, not only of God's goodness or God's love or whatever you want to put in the first part of that question. You're understanding, you're misunderstanding the natural inclination of man in the second part. The idea that somehow God stands as a barrier to relationship with him, when in reality it is our sin that forms that barrier to relationship with him. When you understand the depth of our sin, when you understand the idea that my whole desire on my own is not to seek the God who made me, but to establish myself as the God of my own universe, and then the question isn't why would a good God send people to hell? Then the question is why would this God bother to redeem anyone when there is no good thing in us that would demand that. The question isn't why does God send people to hell? It's why does God enable anyone to live with him in heaven? And that is why we talk about sin. And that's why we talk about the gospel like we did in the last episode. And I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't. Um, because sin has a wage, sin has a cost, sin has a price. And the universal fact of us being sinners means that universally and as a whole, individuals and collectively, we deserved hell. That was our whole trajectory. But God, in his kindness and mercy, made a way for us to be saved, for us to be redeemed. He gives us this gospel message and he changes our hearts through that. 
that when Paul later in Romans one, not later and just before that in Romans one, verse 16 says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's powerful because that gospel is not a right. That gospel is a gracious and merciful gift that God has given. It's, it's why there's such an urgency to our gospel presentation and our gospel proclamation. It's why the church should have this burden to preach the gospel because we recognize the universal nature of our sin and the universal movement toward hell and our own natural headlong rush toward everything that is eternally destructive. And the gospel graciously is given and the gospel graciously transforms hearts. And so when you ask, how does a good God send people to hell? The answer in short is because he is good and because sin must be dealt with. And because every sinner that eternally perishes does so justly. And we don't say that vindictively or we don't celebrate sin, but we are able to see the righteousness of God displayed even in judgment. But then we also have to talk about the fact that that same just God is also merciful. That same just God paid the price for the sins of his people through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so as often as we ask, how could God send people to hell? We ought to be brought face to face with, again, with the nature and the cost of sin, the, the cosmic treason to borrow another person's use of that phrase. And it's a great way to put it. The cosmic treason that sin is the right deserving of hell that rests on every person. And then we just have to stand silent and amazed and awestruck at the mercy of God that would reach in and save anybody. And he does. And so for those of us that are believers, we rejoice in our salvation. It is one of the reasons that believers should be the most joyful, the most humble, the most passionate people when it comes to proclaiming the gospel, because we realize that that good and just God should have condemned me as well. But in his goodness and mercy, he saved me and he has given me that gospel message that in turn saves others. And I don't know who will respond but I do know that there are those who will respond because he's told us, he's told us that the harvest is plentiful. He's given us those pictures and revelation of multitudes of multitudes, thousands of 10,000s gathered around the throne from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping him. And so it's our great privilege to see that this God of justice is also a God of mercy. And it's not that he ignored the standard. It's that he upheld the standard of his perfection completely as he accepted the sacrifice of his one and only son on the cross. And that gospel message continues to go out and will go out every day until he returns. And the wonderful promise is that he won't lose one of his people, that there is not one person uh, that Christ has called unto himself that will not come, uh, that his work of redemption will not be left lacking, uh, that he will not be caught off guard by the number and the names of who are there but that he's written them down in his book. And he has given you and I this really wonderful and beautiful and unthinkable privilege of participating in that work of redemption through our gospel presentation. So it is a great question, um, but it's a question that a lot of times 
exposes our ignorance of the evil of sin, the perfection of God, and the beauty of the gospel. It's truly breathtaking, Pastor Matt. Thank you very much. Um, And thank you for listening to episode eight of the Grounded Podcast. Um, We'll see you next week, and we will answer the question, how can a Christian overcome addiction? It's a good one. We'll see you then.